There are two futures. The future of desire and the future of fate. And man's reason has never learned to separate them. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. (laughs) Oh yeah, baby, baby, Bernal. 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 Papa Bernal, what's the score? Well, I decided to make Papa Bernal the um, space legend of the month. Well, I think it's fully deserved because the further we look into him, Matt, I mean, wow. Oh, my gosh. OMG. Oh, my wow. We've got an interview with Fred Sharman later on in this uh, particular episode of the Interplanetary Podcast, Podcast 145. And who is Fred Sharman, Matthew? Fred Sharman is the Associate Professor of the Morgan State University. Uh, I, I believe he's an architect, but he's he's very, very interested in space architecture, as we'll hear. He's written some pretty amazing stuff, including a book that I'm reading at the moment called Space Settlements. This is excellent news. We are going, we're going deep into this settlements in space thing, aren't we? We're, we're big time. I mean, we're reading papers on trains... We're putting up photos on Instagram. I mean, how much more research do you want? It's been a mind opener. Has it? One of the things that comes up quite a lot is the Bernal Sphere, Mm. which is a space habitat. And that's because he mentioned this in a book. But just a quick background on on John Desmond Bernal and really how space habitats sort of came out of the sort of social conscious of yes. of the time. There, there, there's something about the time of the 1920s mm. and and a little bit further on that, that made people start thinking about these things. But And, and Bernal's definitely falls in that category. But, yeah, he was an Irish scientist and he had a really, really weird background of Jewish, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, all sorts of things. It's a good mix. He's a good mix, but he's most famous for being a pioneer of X-ray crystallography, which at its time was that was the super cutting edge. This is how we learn what molecules actually look like. It's weird because it's what I studied. X-ray crystallography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did I did X-ray crystallography and then art and design. Jamie, are you confusing you yourself with Rosalind, Frank? Oh, yeah, sorry. Carry on. Okay. So he, he went to Cambridge to study maths and science. Yeah. Then the Royal Institute, where he did lots of work on graphite, um, including, you know, almost sort of coming up with graphene, bizarrely. Then he went back to Cambridge. uh, But because Rutherford, Ernest Rutherford, the great Ernest Rutherford, didn't like him, he didn't get tenure there. So he went to Birkbeck in London, uh, where he was known as the sage because he was such a polymath. A scientist of dazzling intellectual ability. I would love that nickname, even for a day. People to walk past me and go, all right, Sage. It's a good herb as well. It's a great herb. Terrible accounts program. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Ruined my life for many years. Shout out to all the accountants out there. Matt, I've got an accountant joke. Would you like it now or at the end? I doubt we're going to bring up accountants again, so go for it. How do you... No, what does an accountant do when they're constipated? Works it out with a pencil. What do you think? Um, it's pretty uh, good, isn't it? It's pretty good. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm sure with a space thing, we can somehow bring Uranus in there. Oh, dear. It's, what's very interesting about Bernal is that he never won a Nobel Prize, but lots of his students did. Dorothy Hodgkin, Max Peretz, Aaron Klug. They all won Nobel Prizes, and they were all his students. Wow. Um, so not only did he co- change the course of science... But he also was part of things, he, he was a witness and participant in things like the Easter Rebellion, the Great Strike, the anti-fascist movement, the, the pacifist cause, civil defence, RAF bombing strategy, planned the D-Day landings, uh, was involved with post-war rebuilding, working on nuclear weapons. Jeez. Just, a, you know. Just a few then, things. He was an oft, you know, he often found down at Downing Street or at the White House or at the Kremlin where he was meeting Churchill, Stalin, Mao Zedong. Ah, it's just where he knocked L- about. L- Louis Mountbatten, Picasso, all the famous scientists of the 20th century. This guy was connected, like properly connected. But um, he, he's got quite, <laughs> quite a fruity private life as well. He was oh. married to Agnes Eileen Sprague who was a socialist, and they had a, an open marriage which they lived up to with great gusto. Oh. It says, yes. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so he had an affair with his genius student chemist, Dorothy Hodgkin, as we, who went on to win a Nobel Prize. He had uh, long-term relationships with uh, an artist, Margaret Gardner, and they, they had a couple of children. He had a couple of children with his wife, and he also had another child with Margot Heinemann, so yeah, wow, he what was, a cat. We so he was out there putting it about in both science and love. And uh yeah, it's a I mean, so he wanted to also have children in space, I assume. Yeah. He was an international man of mystery. He was but why but, but why on earth are we talking about a biologist on the interplanetary podcast? Uh John, you're attempting re-entry. <laughs> the reason why he attempted re-entry several times, um, <laughs> was that he was, he was, he, he, he uh, doing all this, he still had time to write lots and lots of science fiction books, well, not science fiction books, but popular books on science and society. You've One got a favourite one, though, haven't you? I, I have, and actually, it's pretty easy to find as a PDF online. And it's pretty quick read. It's called The World, The Flesh, and The Devil. Wow. Now, don't take, don't take my word for how good this book is, but Arthur C. Clarke describes it as the most brilliant attempt at scientific prediction ever made, whereas Robert Scholes calls it a book of breathtaking scientific speculation that is probably the single most influential source of science fiction ideas. Wow. That would do so, it. So, yeah. So this is a short book that made those two people um, basically get quite hyperbolic about it all. What is hyperbolic, Matt? You know, look it up. Maybe we could have, we could have hyperbole. I'm sorry, I know what word. it means. I was just being silly. I was just being really oh, silly. Were you... I feel really silly today. Sorry, everyone. If you've got two... Ma- look, me and Matt are friends. If we were down the pub <laughs> and he said hyperbolic, I'm going to say something silly. <laughs> so I don't think I should be any different around you lot. There, no, I said it. No, I agree. So let's you move set on. T- let's you move do on. set the tone for our Discord um, chatter as well. Yeah, Jamie. I heard that they're all potty mouths as well. <laughs> They certainly are. 
it's all about the world, the flesh, and the devil. And this mm. is man's three struggles. And what basically he puts, he uses man's three struggles, the world, the flesh, and the devil, as a way of looking into the future. So he, the three kinds of struggles are the 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 world, the massive, unintelligent forces of nature, heat, cold, wind, rivers, matter, energy, and all those kind of things. Yeah that shape our destiny then the second the flesh things that are closer to us things like animals and plants our own bodies health issues disease and then finally the devil our desires and our fears our imaginations and stupidities and all of these three things combine to to sort of make us look into the future and it's absolutely brilliant it's clearly a brilliant mechanism for sort of working out how things are going to pan out because as 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 you'll see as I go through this he comes up with some amazing kind of concepts and ideas that that are just unbelievably close to the bone it's amazing wow. okay so yes he takes each of those divisions uh, with the arbitrary assumption that his progress that man's progress in it will continue while on other respects man remains the same Ooh. Oh, and and I love this bit of the quote, is that the future being unknown and incontrovertible has been a fair ground on which to place all our hopes and desires. But in scientific prediction, these desires are the most delusive guides. The opposite danger is, of course, a great and more insidious one of the present we take for granted to an extent far greater than we can realise that all the developments that are going on will lead to a world incomparably more efficient and richer than the present. Bear in mind, this is 1929. Capable of supporting a much larger population, secure from want and having ample leisure, but still a world limited in space to the surface of the globe and in time to the caprices of geological epochs. There in that one paragraph outlined why we should be building space settlements. It's just genius. Cool? I mean, this is a long time ago, too. Yeah, 1929. It's big things. Uh, and then he says that we're already looking into conquering space, just as we've conquered the air. Uh, but even though this ambition seems fantastic, as time goes on, it will become reinforced by necessity. And then this is my favourite bit of the whole book. He meant this Here one sentence has been doing my head in. It may be that both the problem of space travel and the ethereal transference of energy have already been solved by Professor Japolsky's magnetofugal waves. I cannot find anywhere any reference to either of those two things, Professor Japolsky or magnetofugal waves. So if anyone out there knows what the I hell that's about. I was going to say, yeah, could you, can you you know, decode that, anyone? Yeah, it'd be interesting that the fact that they thought, yes, that you could beam energy across, you know, this was all about beaming energy because he'd, 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 he'd been talking about the rocket equation and, and how much you basically need all the fuel just to carry the fuel into space. But, and there had to be a better way of beaming energy to the spacecraft. Well, and that's why I he mentions that. Please get in touch, people. That's your homework for this week. Yeah. Please find that out. And I'll tell you what, Matt, if my nickname is going to be Sage, you mm -hmm. can be Professor Chipolsky. <laughs> that I'm, is cool, isn't it? I'm going, to be called, 
I'm going to be called Professor Japolsky for the rest of the podcast. Say, Sage and Japolsky. That's like two yeah. kind of like kooky cops. Oh, yes. Sage you know and, Sage and Japolsky. Sage and Japolsky. I've told you before, damn it. <laughs> what a fight about it. You ripped up half of Manhattan. That kind of thing. Like we're, we're being shouted at by the chief of police, you know. Japolsky, put that away. <laughs> Getting back to point, Jamie. I know, you're ex- I know you're excitable this week. You know I'm, I'm excited today. <laughs> um, but it's because we're talking about space settlements. I mean, yeah. wow, this is exciting so, stuff. So, yeah, Bernal also pointed out that the, the, the first space vessels will be cramped and uncomfortable. And uh, yeah. uh, there'll be really problems landing on planets, so they'd have to probably come back with parachutes and all those sort of things. And this one's my favourite. If the problem of the utilisation of solar energy has, has by that time been solved, the movement of these space vessels can be maintained indefinitely, i.e. he's just predicted Voyager there. And, <laughs> yeah. Well, actually not Voyager, but like, you know, any solar pad spacecraft that's been going through the solar system actually he doesn't mention nuclear power so anyway failing this a form of space sailing might be developed by which the repulsive effect of the sun's rays instead of wind to increase speed hello planetary society yeah as proved last week 1929 he's talking about last week's success that is that is amazing yeah but this this one is the bit that I think is the really great bit of insight. He says, so far, those who have considered spatial navigation have regarded it from the point of view of exploration and planetary visitation. But the vast importance of escaping from the Earth's gravitational field has been almost entirely overlooked. On Earth, even if we should use all the solar energy that we received, we should still be wasting all but one two billionths of the energy that the sun gives out. And that, my friend, is the paragraph that goes on to inspire people like Dyson and the Dyson sphere, i.e. there's all this energy that the sun is pumping out. And we we only, we, here on Earth, even if we were to capture all of that using solar panels, we'd only be catching one two, two billionth of the energy. God damn, that's insane. We sh- when we sh- when we get onto these space settlements like O'Neill cylinders and stuff like that, one of the things is that this absolutely abundance of space energy that from the sun, and that you could actually start swarm what's a Dyson swarm of of space habitats around the sun, and that's what made people from SETI, for example, look out for these swarms of space settlements that maybe advanced civilizations have. He then goes on to sort of talk about space fabrication because then he says, you know, getting things on and off the Earth is so difficult that if anything was damaged in space, you wouldn't be able to return because a damaged space vessel almost certainly will be destroyed on re-entry. Mm. So he starts right. to talk about how, it, you know, the essentialness of building things out in space, a space infrastructure. This is 1929. Uh, and then... He imagines, and this is that this is the bit that people sort of go back to all the time: a, a spherical shell, ten miles or so in diameter, made of the lightest materials and mostly hollow. So, and he just thinks of it as a place where people can go and live. And the source of the material out of which would be made would be, in small part, drawn from the earth. For the great bulk of the structure would be made of the substance or of one or more smaller asteroids, or the rings of Saturn, or planetary detritus. 
the initial stages of construction are the most difficult to imagine. They'll probably consist of attaching an asteroid of some hundred yards or so diameter to a space vessel. So he starts talking about all these things of going and grabbing asteroids and things like that. He's, you know, he's out there, man, doing pretty much a lot of the groundwork for what what we're going to talk about. What we're going to talk about is pretty much that. I mean, wow, hollowing it out and removing material to build the first protective shell. Yeah. And, and Afterwards, then, the shell could be reworked bit by bit using elaborated and more suitable substances and at the same time increasing its size by diminishing its thickness. Wow. Yeah, and then he goes, then he goes on to talk about the psychological aspects of people living, living in this Bernal sphere and the criticism that, that, that habitants might be bored or Which we find talked it about dull. last week. Yeah, yeah, and the diver- and the diversity of the scene of animals and plants and and all that, and then he he sort of says, on the other hand, that there is that there are people in his day that were quite scientists who were quite happy to spend all their time in the lab talking to their clever friends and things like that. So he mm. kind of points out that humans are evolving already. I don't want to be that guy, but if you think about social media these days, how much do people just spend? hours a day just staring at their phone exactly exactly so so you can't kind of go oh i'd really miss the plants would you am i getting too angry matt no no but i think that's a really important point jamie that 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 back in 1929 it must have been incredibly hard to perceive of humans being able to sort of cope with life indoors life just wasn't Mm. like that but now that's kind of the life that we do lead so right you know this was Pretty forward-thinking stuff. Now, I kind of, after reading this, I just thought, well, Bernal was just so ahead of his time. But then it's quite interesting when you look at the history, a really good look at the history of how space settlements kind of came together. And you can really start to see the ideas forming. So while Bernal's writing that book, Gerard... Kitchen O'Neill. What a brilliant son. What a brilliant middle name that is. Kitchen. Kitchen. Is that real? <laughs> yeah. I think it's because it's his mum's surname, I think. But Kitchen. Gerard Kitchen O'Neill wow. was born two years before that book came out. So he's being born into this era of thinking. But there was an old man at the time, Konstantin Solkovsky, that we talk about loads. And the reason why That's we right. talk about him loads is because he simply is absolutely amazing at that point he's writing a book called the will of the universe the unknown intelligence and so in 1928 jamie he's writing about panpsychism that we brought up accidentally last podcast when i was talking about uh, sam harris's wife's book annika harris's book so yeah yeah so panpsychism I mean, it's just like, so Solkowski wrote about a whole load of things. But in 1903, he expanded on his description of man's space stations to include rotation for artificial gravity, the use of solar energy, uh, greenhouses in space, closed ecological systems. Um, And he would go on to state that he only came up with the Solkowski rocket equation as a kind of supplement to philosophical research on the subject. It's kind of like a side issue for him, the kind of maths and all that bit. He was much more interested in in paving the ways for humans to eventually colonise the Milky Way and beyond. Wow. But, it's just nuts. Yeah. 
the the first mention, as far as anyone can find, uh, of a space settlement is called the Brick Moon. Ah, eighteen sixty nine. Edward Everett, and basically, yeah, the Brick Moon is is a story about these people accidentally sent into space in a brick building because it's catapulted into space, and they <laughs> and they live happily on this brick moon. So yeah, it's it's. It's obviously a bit silly and doesn't contain a lot of the details, but Jules Verne yeah. and Kurd Latzwitz all wrote about um, space habitats from that point onwards, some 1878, 1897. But this one is incredible. 1918, Robert Goddard, the famous Goddard, who essentially invented liquid liquid rockets, um, he wrote about a nuclear-propelled space arc carrying civilizations from a dying solar system towards another star for a new beginning. So he came up with that concept. But, get this, he kept it secret in a sealed envelope for over 50 years for, for fear of pu- professional humiliation. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, so no one heard about his genius idea. But in the 1920s, a year in the 1920s, a couple of years later, Goddard then suggested the use of extraterrestrial resources to manufacture propellants and structure. So this is a little bit before Bernal's book. So Goddard's already seeing the the sense of using in space resources. And then in pops another giant of space, Obert, in 1923. Herman Obert elaborated on the potential use of space stations and noted that they could be used as platforms for scientific research, astronomical observations, and Earthwatch. So essentially describes the International Space Station. Um, 1928, Guido von Dacke. He considers three stations, one low, one high, and one that's elliptical orbit going in between them and servicing them. So okay, okay. thinking of refueling depots for deep space flights. And then uh, Potochnik, who was writing as a guy called Hermann Nordung, came up with the concept of a rotating wheel-shaped uh, space station called the Vernrad, or living wheel. And it would be in geostationary orbit. Robert A. Heinlein expanded the interstellar arc concept of Goddard, although I don't know whether he would have known about Goddard's work. H. E. Ross from the British Interplanetary Society, the guy that designed that spacesuit that you often see. Um, in 1949, he came up with the concept of a geosynchronous rotating boom, which takes out, out all the mass element of it. So you've got basically wow. two things either either side, and you create artificial gravity that way. Werner von Braun takes the Nording wheel and makes it pretty famous in those kind of Disney Disney films that we see of the of, yes. of von Braun's space station. 1952, he starts um, suggesting a 76 meter diameter uh, at a 1,730 kilometer orbit. Uh, and in the same year, Arthur C. Clarke is writing his novel Islands in the Sky about even larger stations. And L.R. Shepard is envisaging a nuclear pad m- million ton interstellar colony vehicle called Noah's Ark. Interesting. 1961, Arthur C. Clarke again uh, starts suggesting that we should be putting large space stations in the Lagrange points. Oh, that guy. Yeah, so they can sort of fix, stay fixed in one point. Oh, Jamie, I tell you what yeah. came up in the Discord. ZZ Top 
a song well, that needs to go into the um, Spotify playlist. They they've written a song about Lagrange points. No way. How did we miss that? I know. So it's got to go in. Get in there. <laughs> yeah, get in ZZ Top. Thank you, Discord. 1956, Daryl Romick proposed the cylinder, one kilometre long, 300 metres in diameter, um, rotating that, that 20,000 people could live in. So that's 1956. So we've moved on from the time of Bernal now. Uh, 1963, uh, Dandridge Cole suggested out hollowing out asteroids. So that's a pretty huge one because we'll talk about that either this week or next yes. week. Um, and then, of course, 1969 sees the moon landing. But uh, Gerard Kitchen O'Neill, also in 1969, asks his students whether they, whether they, you know, to start designing large structures in outer space and what they should look like. And they do a lot of work on this. And uh, he started putting together a paper called The Colonisation of Space. And it's worth actually thinking of O'Neill. He was a very, very clever guy. He was rejected as a, an astronaut candidate, but did quite a lot of the training to become an astronaut. So that would have been interesting. But he invented the particle storage ring, which is a really important part of particle accelerators. So it keeps uh, the particles whizzing around in a kind of storage ring before you fire them off. So he yeah. was heavily involved in sort of high particle physics, uh, high energy particle physics. Um, and he also uh, invented, although I'm not sure he did invent, but he was very, very important in the development of the mass driver, which is those rail guns where you you fire mass off the moon for example but arthur c clark also was came up with that concept it's quite funny how arthur c clark and o'neill dance around one another's concepts it's it's quite really is isn't it i mean it's quite a selfish thing because you think that when you hear modern concepts that of course we've just came up with them but you read stuff like this and you realize that it's been going on for like centuries (laughs) yeah 50 years or so yeah so 1970 O'Neill writes uh, The Colonisation of Space from his students and his work, but he Mm. then spends the next four years trying to get the damn thing published. And in the meantime, uh, Arthur C. Clarke brings out Rendezvous with Rama and Larry Niven brings out Ringworld, which have some of the concepts that are in O'Neill's work. But as as we've heard, a lot of this stuff was building up anyway over ever since Solkowski and and people like that, it was building up. Yeah. You could see that these these space settlement ideas were were condensing, as it were, uh, and out of the out of the ether itself. Um, and then 1974, he had a two day conference at Princeton University called the first conference on space colonization. Uh, Drexler and Dyson were both present. Tick uh, tick tick tick. And it made front page news on the New York Times. So people are really into this. So this is just after the Apollo missions have all finished. Mm. And this, I suppose, seemed like it was the next big thing. And as O'Neill pointed out at the time, he said, the profound difference between this and everything else done in space is the potential of generating large amounts of new wealth. Where was he from? I think he was from uh, France. <laughs> <laughs> Just checking. I don't know where he where was O'Neill born. 
We'll find out. 1975, the L5 Society was set up. So L5, L5 obviously named after Lagrange Point. I don't know why it's not L4, and I don't really know if there is a difference between L4 and L5, by the way, in terms of its suitability. I think we went over that when we did our Lagrange episode but is there a different is there a reason why the l5 lagrange point yeah i can't is, remember what we is, said is better than the l4 lagrange point for mm. space stations i don't know uh in june 1975 he then o'neill then led a 10-week study of permanent space habitats at nasa ames is available online all the work from that and it's really really interesting but at the we'll same put the t- link up and you can see how serious this was all being taken by the American government. He he was asked to testify to the House Subcommittee on Space Science and Applications. He then presented his case for solar power from satellites from space. You'll hear in the interview a really interesting point about that. Uh, and then he developed detailed plans to establish bases on the moon. He then leaves NASA despite getting half a million dollars a year in grants to set up with his wife, the Space Studies Institute, which is still going today um, at Princeton University. And where he, where he used to work more on those mass driver concepts was the sort of uh, main sort of drive of his work at that point. So Imagine yeah, the cojones to go, I'm just going to leave NASA and set my own thing up. Love that. Well, I think he was Legend. bogged down with the bureaucracy of NASA at the time. Yeah. In 1977... He released the classic book, The High Frontier, which is well worth getting because it's got that beautiful artwork of all these um, Bernal spheres and, uh, uh, well, and obviously O'Neill cylinders, etc., etc. So a lot of that, I think the artwork ended up in that Bezos speech that he did. Well, you know I need artwork with my books, Matt, so that will help. Yeah, no, absolutely. You you should have that book. Uh, it's It's interesting. He quotes Space Shuttle costing $10 million a launch really way over four times that and probably 20 times that in reality by the time you get to 2011. So Mm. the shuttle basically was a disaster when it came to what people thought it would deliver and what it actually ended up delivering. It was just too expensive. It just didn't work as planned. Um, So, yeah, 1977 was the peak of this kind of interest and O'Neill eventually was appointed by Ronald Reagan onto the National Commission on Space in 1985. And they wrote a huge piece about the government uh, committing to opening the inner solar system for human settlement within 50 years. So, this is it. Yeah. So, but that report essentially got buried because it came out four months after the Space Shuttle Challenger broke up on ascent. So it, it, it felt like it, it was lost. So there we go. It's just mind-blowing. I absolutely love it, and I'm definitely going to be ordering a few books about this. Oh, yeah, no, totally. No, totally. First up, The World, The Flesh, The Devil. Oh, no, absolutely. It's an easy read, that one. It's quite short, but it's so good. You just read it, and it's so well-written, and it's got so many sort of interesting concepts. It doesn't feel dated at all. I mean, Mm. we're going to put this almost 100 years old, and it just feels... It's incredible. Uh, well, it just makes you realise that people have been thinking about these things and it goes around in these cycles of of thought and it'd be really interesting to see if someone, 
you know, could really expand on those ideas in a much more credible way today. I mean, mm. even O'Neill's work seems like it, no one's really taken it much further about space habitation and, and done, the, you know, much more work. It'd be interesting to right. see. We, when we've, exactly. We've seen some interesting journals for sure. Uh, we have. And, and we'll be going along some of those in the next couple of weeks when we finish off this this look at habitats. But the 1975 study that he did, there quite a few things came out of that, and it's and it's quite a good one to kind of look at in terms of how does it all work? How do you how do you design these habitats? And the, it kind of outlays some of the sort of important things. And one of the things that it sort of says is that you have to design a habitat to meet all the site physiological requirements of a permanent population and to foster a viable social community. It says obtain an adequate supply of raw materials and provide the capability to process them. Mm -hmm. You've got to provide an adequate transport system to carry people, raw materials and items of trade. Yes, also develop commercial activity sufficient to attract capital and produce goods and services for trade with Earth. So for a large general population, many of whom must commute between zero G and a rotating environment, uh, it, it looks like you have to minimise the rotation rate. So the only way you can get gravity is by this rotation in space. Uh, uh, you know, you need it, obviously, unless you're doing this on a planet. But we are talking about, you know, these in-space habitats. Uh, but because of the Coriolis force, um, which we dealt with on a previous podcast. We did. Um, you can see that 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 has real consequences for uh, messing around with your inner ear and motion sickness oh, and things like that. Tell so me about it. It looks like people can uh, adapt to rates of below three revolutions per minute. Uh, after prolonged exposure but because they're moving in and out of these different um, regimes of working in zero gravity going back to uh, that kind of proper gravity and stuff like that they set it for the they set it for one revolution per minute they think is the upper limit of a permissible rotation rate and that then gives you a parameter that really decides the sizes of these space habitats that's right uh, obviously, you need an atmosphere. So what can you tell us about the atmosphere of these? Well, human life can be safely and comfortably supported at a pressure well below that of a normal Earth atmosphere. And we've also got temperatures around 22 degrees C and a relative humidity of about 40%. Uh, and finally, the presence and various benefits of nitrogen gas dictate its inclusion in the atmosphere. So yeah, you've got that. So that that pretty much determines what the atmosphere is going to be like, and obviously you've got to have enough water for uh, drinking and sanitation. Heavy a heavy workload will require about three thousand calories a day. Should consist of two hundred g of water, four hundred g of dry of dried various carbohydrates and fats, sixty to seventy grams of dried weight of proteins. Uh, and adequate quantities of various minerals and vitamins. You've got to keep your energy up, Matt. Uh, and, of course, the architecture has to be right for people to not feel isolated or claustrophobic or agrophobic. So it has to be – there are some suitable shapes for these particular space settlements. Uh, uh, do you know what the four shapes – Well, 
basically they were looking at colonies that would be able to sustain about 10,000 people. So what other sort of Well, shapes? we're going to have to start with spheres, aren't yeah. we? Tipping the cap to Mr. Bernal. The rotating cylinders of O'Neill. The Taurus of Von Braun. And, of course, some of the other science fiction shapes offered by Mr. Arthur C. Clarke himself. Ledge. To, to have 10,000 people, that is a living space of roughly 670,000 metres squared. And it's got to meet the psychological and physiological needs of the people, as we've said. And if you make it out of aluminium, you can start working out the kind of structural constraints and the habitat must hold the atmosphere in, in place. And normally what you want is the kind of structure that holds the buildings, i.e. where the forces of gravity are acting on it. You also want that to be the structure that's keeping in the atmosphere as well. So there's a you, you kind of have to be careful that you get that exactly right. And not only that, they, true. They, the, the shells themselves kind of have to be doubly symmetric because you're spinning them, so you have to have the membranes uh, of a certain shape, which then sort of brings you down to those those particular shapes. Basically, either a rotating sphere, a rotating cylinder, a rotating torus, or a rotating dumbbell, or sort of combinations of those kinds of shapes composite shapes i will put a little picture of all the different kind of things like beaded tauruses and banded tauruses and stuff like that which are what's really your favorite good. shape matt okay. out of the lot uh i think the uh, the taurus i think i think when you taurus when you when good. you see science fiction stuff the taurus is where they end up in this in this particular study yeah yeah if you're if you've got this rotating design with 1G at less than one revolution per minute, the system, all those systems have, a, have to have a radius of rotation greater than 895 metres. So they all, have to ha they all have to be, you know, at least a kilometre, really. Yeah. Uh, but over one and a half kilometres uh, diameter. If you look into all the different kind of characteristics of all those different shapes the weight of them, the radius of the sphere, how many people you can keep in them, the complicatedness of the structure, what the vistas would be like inside, all those things. Because of its good hab habitability properties, large volume, uh, all the sort of possible internal arrangements and all those kind of things, yeah. and the access to zero gravity docks, the torus is the one that kind of is adopted as the basic form of a habitat. Uh, often. I just love it too. Those pictures that you've been putting up on Instagram have been blowing my mind. I keep, can't stop thinking about it, of what it might be like, Matt. The, uh, one of the most famous ones in cinema recently has, of course, been Elysium, hasn't it? Yeah. That was a really good Taurus one. Very true. Next week, Jamie, we'll do a rundown on that paper that we were talking about, the uh, Rama. We will, Rama. Reconstituting asteroids into mechanical automata. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty cool, isn't it? I do, the, do you know, the whole of that paper, they don't mention uh, Arthur C. Clarke's Rama. It's like, it seems very, very odd. But yeah, yeah, made in space, the people that make those little plastic spanners on, on the International Space Station have uh, written a very interesting article about how you actually grab asteroids and, and bring them back. So we'll do a rundown on that because it's really, really cool. 
you've got space you've got asteroids that move across the solar system like jellyfish it's very cool um, it is super cool so jamie do you want to listen to do you want to listen to the interview i really would let's roll it fred sharman Akute. the interplanetary podcast putting the ace Back into space! So I'm joined on the podcast with Fred Sharman. One of our Patreons, Rob Annabel, has has kindly put us in touch with. Uh, I'm currently reading your book. Welcome to the show, Fred. Thanks, Matt. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Oh, absolutely my pleasure. So first of all, can you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you've got into space habitats, etc.? Sure, yeah. My primary gig is uh, teaching architecture here in Baltimore City. Um, I'm an associate professor at Morgan State University where I get to teach about uh, cities and buildings. So um, really, like, uh, also just going back for years and years, I've, I've always been um, a fan of space science and science fiction. So um, the book, this current book really comes out of the intersection of, of those two things. So when you have um, something like cities and architecture and space, um, it was a natural fit to be interested in this topic. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's kind of like an architect's dream, isn't it? Because you've got almost a totally uh, new space to work with that has almost less constraints is that right it's weird there are less constraints and there are more constraints right and, and i think you know there, there's a lot that we could get into about that you kind of have to and, and this you know thinking about um thinking about it in this way kind of came through um my involvement with this material as i was putting the book together but when you're building in space you have to um design and specify everything you can't take anything for granted um so in a, in a sense it's like you have to build your own constraints which is a really unique problem but then you know I, as i was as i was working with the writing um i kind of discovered that there's a lot that architects on earth can can learn from that because we're always sort of framing the problem and building the problem and the constraints along with um working within them so um I, in many ways there's there are a lot of um, really continuous connections between thinking about um, making space in space and thinking about making space on Earth. So tell us a little bit about the book. It's it's called Space Settlements. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. the The book is about the work of uh, a physicist and engineer named Gerard O'Neill, who was at Princeton during the '60s, '70s, and '80s. And uh, beginning with his his physics students, he really started to um, uh, engage in a long term project that was the design of really, really large habitats for permanent human living in space. And so we, if you think of something like the International Space Station, I think it has a maximum crew of six. And um, what he was interested in doing um, beginning in the late 60s was designing places for up to several million people. And right away, he, he decided really early on that he wasn't, it, that to him, it didn't make much sense to leave Earth and if your goal is to have access to the energy and resources in space, for him, it didn't make sense to go and live permanently on the moon or go and live permanently on Mars. He wanted to advocate for the creation of, um, of basically giant free-floating cities from scratch that would rotate to create their own artificial gravity. So um, especially in this one specific, what NASA calls a summer study, um, the summer study that took place at the NASA Ames Research Center in what's now Silicon Valley in 1975, um, he really got a chance to put a team together and design the heck out of these things, really to, to uh, 
create in a lot of detail um, specific engineering scenarios, but also specific kind of um, uh, explorations of how these spaces would look and feel. So that's what the book's about, is this 1975 summer study, where for uh, really the first time they started to get architects and designers and urban planners um, involved deeply in the project as well. I noticed that there seemed to be, I went while reading your book, there seemed to be a slight annoyance when people asked him about, say, Arthur C. Clarke's Rama and the connection to that. Is that, yeah. have, I, have I got that right? Because I, yeah. I, I, as I was looking at O'Neill c- cylinders uh, almost directly after Jeff Bezos had spoke about them, obviously I'd heard, yeah. a, I'd heard about them before. I thought, well, I better do a bit more of a dive. I was thinking it's so similar to, to what I'd kind of read in, in, uh, in the Rama books. I was thinking, surely they're influenced. But in, in your book, it kind of suggests not. Is that. <laughs> Tell us a little yeah. bit about that. I think um, it, O'Neill is a really interesting figure because he's able to address all kinds of audiences. He's able to um, sort of speak to science fiction fans. He's able to speak to Congress. He testified before Congress about this project a couple of times. Um, but he also gets a bit touchy uh, because he he sees himself as as an engineer first and foremost. And I think um, I think. In, in when people drew connections to his work and and his his work was kind of uh, uh, broke down into three habitat types. There was the O'Neill cylinder, um, which is a really big cylinder, just like it sounds. There's the Bernal sphere um, and the Stanford torus. So the O'Neill cylinder in particular is, of course, a really big cylinder, a lot like the rotates for artificial gravity, a lot like Rama and Arthur C. Clarke's novel. And the Stanford Taurus is like a small sort of ring world. It's like uh, out of Larry Niven's um, series of novels, which were both out in the early 1970s. So um, these were things that O'Neill was exposed to. He seems to have been a science fiction fan. Um, but in in his uh, in his work, especially in this great response to a letter writer uh, in Physics Today, uh, the journal that he first published some of this work in, who, who goes? Who's obviously obviously this letter writer is really enthusiastic and says, "Oh, you should also check out Rendezvous with Rama and <laughs> and uh, Larry Niven's Ringworld." And and yeah, he he his tone you can you can read even in the text sounds a bit testy when he responds. He says he says these these are serious proposals for um, for actual projects and and yes, I know the the work of those two writers. And he says something about neither of them really contributes to the the practical application of the idea. But they came before him, at least you know, in publication. And there, there are a bunch of antecedents um, too to his work uh, from science fiction and, and elsewhere. But he really, he really, I, I think this is a rhetorical move on his part. He really wanted to hold the line that um, that this is not science fiction. That this could be built. And this is another phrase that comes up in his writing a lot. It could be built with today's technology. That is the technology of 1975. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, we we had a, a guest on a couple of weeks ago. It was talking about how some of these ideas from nineteen seventy, the, the sort of seventy seventies era on space mm-hmm. habitats, they were addressing problems that seem really naive now with some of the technology that's come along. Is there is there any? Have you got a really good example of that that you've kind of spotted as you worked worked your way through the book? Well, they they take for granted that um, that ecosystem design could be a, a really easily solvable problem. And I think that's really striking because this is also an era where um, 
ecological thinking was kind of at the forefront of popular culture for really the first time in the in the 60s and 70s. Um, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, had come out in, I think, 1962, and that was read by millions. And, you know, in the early 70s, the Club of Rome's report about um, resources and ecosystem collapse uh, was also in every single bookstore, um, as you can tell, because it's in all the thrift stores now today. Mm-hmm. Um, but and that's limits to growth, right? So, so it's about how the Earth's ecosystem can't support the growth, the parent growth of human population. And um, this this project is kind of pitched as a solution to that, but there's there's quite a lot of hand waving about um, about how that's going to take place. And you know, you mentioned uh, Jeff Bezos's uh, recent uh, recently announced project for giant basically O'Neill cylinders and Stanford Tauruses in space as his long-term plan. And there's some similar kind of dodging of the um, ecological questions, I think, in his work too. And Bezos was, was, um, Bezos was at Princeton, and he, he, didn't, he doesn't seem to have been enrolled in any of O'Neill's classes while he was there, but he did attend a lot of his lectures. And um, O'Neill's ideas have been uh, really influential to um, Bezos, especially um, and his company Blue Origin for a long time, but but again, there's this question of well, there's this two two sided question here: the idea that we need to make new from scratch habitats in space in order to um, in order to provide a kind of backup system for the ecosystem on Earth. But if we can, there's always that that lingering kind of um, uh, assumption underneath that that well, hey, if we can design ecosystems in space and build them successfully, why, why shouldn't we apply that effort to try to do that on the planet, in the ecosystem that we have now, um, in order to, to get things running in a more productive way here and now as well? Mm. Which is not to say that we can't do one until we do the other, but there's this, there's this tendency from the 70s till today to, to just go, oh, well, this is already messed up. we got to go do it again. <laughs> yeah, we'll be able to do it right this time. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's, that's always been my super objection to Interstellar, where it's like you've got a planet that's dying, where, and the solution is to try and find a much harder place to find where it's not. <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah. Uh, maybe sort out the one that you know works. But it's, it's, it's funny, isn't it, that 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 because uh, even Elon Musk gets trapped with that with uh, with putting settlements on Mars as well, doesn't he? So it's a it's a common theme, <laughs> mm-hmm. let's say. Um, is is there any other kind of technological um, breakthroughs? Uh, like the the flip side to that coin, is there any other sort of technological breakthroughs that have happened in the eighties and nineties and noughties, etc. That that make some of the thinking of O'Neill c- cylinders naive, where where it's like, oh look, this this solution was actually easier than we thought. That's a good question. And I think um, I follow a little bit uh, some of the, you know, in other areas of, of new space, um, some of the uh, asteroid mining companies. And I think that um, there's a lot more that, that we know about. And I'm, I'm using we broadly here, of course, but mm. that, uh, that people know about resources that are available. Um, maybe a, a less progress has moved slower than than most people have anticipated whether many people like O'Neill from the 1970s had anticipated um, but it does seem like uh, like there's more likely to be something happening within the next five years in that regards than there than there have been in any five-year p- period since you know at least since the uh, end of the spatial program in 2011 hmm 
Yeah, I mean, is do you think because because it de- definitely feels as though there's been a stalling of progress on on things like space stations. You know, if if you look back to mm-hmm. again, we can mention Arthur C. Clarke's two thousand and one and what his mm-hmm. vision was there. It's it's completely wild, wildly out. So. Do you do you think that that's down to a lack of ambition, or more to do with a uh, of an underestimating that the actual problem in the first place? Yeah, I think, um, and and you and your listeners would certainly know uh, quite a lot about uh, about the kind of uh, the failure of expectations over the past thirty years in, in different space programs around the world, but. Um, the, the shuttle program was obviously much more expensive to run than anybody anticipated. And you know, there were political reasons for something like the Apollo program to exist that don't, uh, that don't really exist anymore. But it, it seems like, it does seem like culturally, um, culturally like ideas about the future, big ideas about the future in general, aside from economic or political concerns, are harder to come by, uh, in the, in the 20 teens, um, for all the technological capacity that, that, uh, that nation states and private companies have, um, it's disappointing to see even, even the big dreams, even, you know, somebody like Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, 15 or 20 year plan to be a reiteration of this work from, from the 1970s. Hmm. I mean, that, that there's an element of me that, that, that thinks it's, the, the Victorians, I suppose, I don't know what you could, what you call that era in America, but the Victorian era definitely yeah. felt with the, with the kind of engineering was how 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 much more epic and bigger and bigger it could get with you know Brunel and people like this building bigger and bigger and and you yeah. even Apollo felt like it was coming out of that era, but since then technology's been more about getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and I wonder if. That plays a part in 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 the fact that that these things that are super epically massive just are not really the the direction that technology is going in in the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the um, the oil crisis of and energy crisis of the early nineteen seventies have a lot to do with that as well. Um, if you take and and this is maybe just you know uh, my bias because I've, <laughs> I've been you know I, I've had my nose in books about the about and from the 70s for um literally years now but there does seem to be this this uh this seasonal this this sea change uh in around 72 75 and i think if, if you look at energy costs it starts to make a lot of sense because energy costs was just falling and falling and falling until the energy crisis and since since then it's gone up and down and up and down but that was the first sort of wake-up call that um that that expansionism um, might have a, uh, an end date, which is, of course, also what the Club of Rome was saying um, really explicitly, that, that the current sort of capitalist mode of continuous expansion of GDP, continuous expansion of industrial capacity, continuous expansion of population was literally not sustainable. Uh, so so in, in one sense, it is interesting to see that in this project from from the seventies and in, and its and in its ongoing cultural influence, um, this way out from under that, like o- O'Neill will literally write and, and speak to Congress about how um, about how a steady state society would be um, un-American. Mm. Uh, so he's he's sort of he's rebutting the ideas of the Club of Rome there, um, and, and there's a whole section of his testimony um, labeled "Room for Growth," which 
even though he doesn't mention the, the book limits to growth, he's directly, um, he's directly saying that, that this, this is how we can keep that, that line on the graph, um, uh, how we can keep its motion continually up and to the right uh, for you know the next century or so at least. So it is like it goes back to that Victorian era that we do need to build bigger and bigger and more and more. And in the real world, that that line on the graph kind of started to level out or even drop. But in the scenario, that 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 expansion of capacity in all senses was just going to keep going, going, going if we could just get out into space. Yeah, I mean the little we hear Bezos talking, it's it's he he's been really influenced, hasn't he, by O'Neill because he mm-hmm. he talks very much about that 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 expansion only being possible where you flip industry into space that you you flip it upside down or whatever his particular phrase is that that industry has to be moved to space. Do you think there will do do you believe in that particular scenario? Do you, do you think that there is a scenario where industry that we're kind of constrained by the environment that is earth and that once once we are able to get industry into space that then suddenly we'll see a lot of these epic engineering projects start again where we've got uh well in some ways a whole new source of energy as well with you know off off earth solar power even is is in a, a, hell of, a hell of a lot better than it is down here so do, do, do you do you see something like that happening there, there are a couple of things. Uh, yeah, there, there are a couple of things that that brings to mind. One is that I actually just went on a tour of an Amazon fulfillment center yesterday uh, here in Baltimore, and the the sheer, I mean, you're in when you're in one of those buildings. I don't know if you've ever been in one, but if you have, I'll tell all your listeners that if if you have the chance to go on one of these tours, they're free tours. You book them in advance. Um, I don't know if they they do with the same system in the UK, but go go on the tour um, because you're in a giant machine. I mean, there's all kinds of impressions that you that take away that I'm still processing about that tour. But yeah, the overall um, sense that you have is, is that you're inside this giant mechanism. So after that tour, I think I'm completely convinced that if anybody has the capacity to um, to mobilize all the, you know, the supply chain, right, that, that would hmm. um, be necessary for a project like this, that it would be Bezos. Um, the other side of that is that there are all kinds of um, of externalities sort of waiting in the wings that nobody's really figured out yet. Um, you mentioned uh, if Bezos mentions um, putting industrial uh, putting an industrial base in space. Um, energy from space was certainly part of O'Neill's project. They, the people living in these habitats were going to be building giant solar satellites that would beam down um, power via microwave to ground-based receivers. And O'Neill tells Congress that that this is going to quote put the Middle East out of business. So it is it is again it's about the oil crisis. Mm. Um, there are there are all kinds of unknowns in that scenario. I mean, I've I've spoken with physicists who say, well, just in terms of the um, the inadvertent heating of the atmosphere in the path of transmission from a space based uh, sender and an Earth based receiver. That would add more thermal energy, more BTUs to the planetary environment. So there's there's no and, and to the tune of somebody and I, it was a friend of mine on Twitter that did back of envelope calculations, but to the tune of about two degrees Celsius per century. <laughs> so there's no it, energy is really tough, right? Because energy any any use of energy um, is by definition exothermic. You're going to be producing heat because there's no efficient. Uh, uh, 
transition from potential energy to applied energy. So yep. the waste is heat. <laughs> um, even if we're not burning fossil fuels, um, we're going to be heating the atmosphere and the biosphere anyway. And, it, and again, even in the 1970s, um, physicists were concerned about um, what they called the I can't remember the actual phrase. It's something like peak heat. But um, just even before global warming was really on a lot of people's radars as a side effect of fossil fuel consumption, um, physicists were talking about how just the just the application of useful work creates waste heat. And even to the point where um, uh, Sebastian von Horner, I think is his name, who was a SETI scientist to search for extraterrestrial intelligence, in the 1960s he was publishing papers saying, Look, any civilization, as we know it, is going to produce a bunch of waste heat. So we should just go look for the waste heat. We should look for any planetary or solar system uh, body that uh, that is just radiating way too much in the thermal end of the spectrum than it should be. And that's where we'll find civilizations. Because we were doing it, too. Hmm. And um, so there's no... And, and again, of course, a microwave, an, orbitable, an orbiting microwave is also like kind of a death ray, too. So... <laughs> Uh, whoever controls that kind of system is going to throw the balance of global or solar system, whatever you want to call it, power um, off its axis one way or another. And so there are political externalities. There are externalities just in terms of thermodynamics and physics that um, that are really hard to get around. I mean, the laws of thermodynamics are really hard to get around and um, getting off the planet into space. Even if you set aside... Um, right, we were at a fulfillment center. You know, if you set aside the question of fulfillment, I mean, what are they going to do? They're going to airdrop an iPhone from orbit. If, if, I, if I order this, this is my my Amazon Prime delivery. Will <laughs> they'll manufacture it in in a space based facility, and then you still have to get it down to the to the planet itself, which involves a whole kind of set of other questions too. Um, not the least of which are the thermodynamics involved there too. Getting a bunch of stuff down to the planet is going to create a lot of waste heat as well, too. So I think there are a lot of unknowns um, in all of these problems, just like there always are with any large engineering project. But um, it's it's disappointing to to see them um, to see them glossed over uh, even today. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess anything that's epic or on a, on a world's on a sort of world scale. <laughs> always has unintended consequences you you never yeah. know what 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 those are going to be e- even if it's twitter always has un- yeah. unintended consequences <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so you know it, it's yeah I, it's it's very very hard isn't it and i don't think any science fiction writer has ever really tackled it with great gusto i mean i know that they've they've tried but it's you, you never you always the, the assumption is that somehow those things have been solved <laughs> rather mm-hmm. than a still ongoing massive problem all the time and a lot of things have gotten solved you know people people will always answer that uh that criticism with uh, quotes from you know the early 20th century about how uh rocketry will never be uh technically feasible or, or how mm. no one, you know, no one would ever have any use for a computer, um, outside of, you know, four or five global companies, things like that. So, um, so but it's worth, you know, having the conversation either way. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. what, what's always funny is, is, is how people miss the technologies that, that do 
become world changing. You know, it's it's quite funny reading science fiction Star Trek where they don't haven't even thought about having a mobile phone in your hand with <laughs> with the world's knowledge on it <laughs> with a screen. You know, it's just, and and that's just run of the mill. We don't even think about it technology these days. Mm-hmm. So with back back to O'Neill cylinders is. Do you think the O'Neill cylinders have a kind of? Do you think that they do have a future? Do you think that that is some something that where we're going to go is, or or have they been surpassed by other um, technologies or other ideas? Do you think? I think um, architecturally, spatially, uh, there's a lot of really fascinating things about the the kind of solution to the problem that O'Neill and his collaborators hit on, which I think the key insight is you you make a ground, you make a instead of having room and room and room, you know, like in like say the space station in two thousand one where you have the space hotel or whatever, um, you create a whole new ground and then you build structures on that ground that are kind of independent of the ground. Mm. And that um the Stuart Brand and, and others uh, writing in the 90s. Um, actually, the, his source was the president of Reba at the time, um, the person he sources this idea to, uh, in, in a book called How Buildings Learn, which is about, um, basically, you know, it sounds boring, but it's about building renovation and how people renovate and update existing buildings and cities. He writes about how the structure changes must much more slowly than the stuff inside, and then there are a whole bunch of layers in between that. So, you know, we, we might move our furniture around more often than we punch holes in the wall or arrange the partitions, you know, that define a room. And even uh, more rarely than that, do we do structural work? Even more rarely than that, do we do landscape or foundation work that really affects where the structure meets the ground? So the independence of those layers, uh, Stuart Brand was finding that built, sort of built in implicitly to the way we use architecture in cities. So... O'Neill independently kind of applied that idea that the ground itself would be independent from the structures on top of it so that the flexibility could be maintained. And, you know, of course, it's much more comfortable to feel like you're living in a big open space that you can see and understand than it would be to live in a series of small capsules like in a submarine or in, a, or in say, the International Space Station today. Yeah, it's, is there any kind of real downside to getting your essentially your fake gravity instead of from a massive body, you're getting it from a rotating body? What's what, what's the kind of downsides to that? Because presumably they're not they're not identical. Yeah, yeah. Um, there there was a, a physiologist on on the team at a few of these meetings um, in the seventies named Ashton Graybeal and. Uh, he had done work going back to the 50s and 60s with the Navy and with NASA that involved large rotating rooms and they'd spin these Navy guys around basically until they puked, you know, and, <laughs> and then compile the statistics about what spin rate makes the most people puke and what spin rate makes fewer people puke and what, what are the safest and most reliable um, sort of revolutions per minute that humans can, can take. And I found that about one RPM you could pretty much guarantee nobody's going to get ill because basically the problem is if you move your head in different directions, the force vectors are doing different things to your inner ear. So your sensation of down gets subtly thrown off in terms of the body's sort of fluid system. It's, it's now no longer in alignment with what your eyes are telling you is down. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that sort of, uh, that's that, 
that's seasickness, basically. Um, it's the same uh, same mechanism. So that that RPM sets the size because um, if you if you have a larger object and you want to create one gravity and one Earth gravity inside it, um, you can spin it more slowly uh, than a smaller one. Mm. Small a small radius means you have to spin really fast, which means more more people more people are going to puke. So um, so the size of these things is is a consequence of the sort of physics and the physiology, which is really interesting too. In in practical terms, um, again in two thousand one, uh, you know a, a certain percentage of that Space Hilton's customers would would not be happy in that environment because it's a relatively small radius. You need about about a, a half mile um, radius in order to get one RPM and generate one gravity, which is a really large habitat. That's that's what sets the size of the Stanford Taurus and the Bernal Sphere, which were supposed to have a population of about ten thousand people. Yeah, but it, it it kind of it works out quite neatly, doesn't it? It feels like that that's a, a sort yeah. of doable size. So yeah, that must have when they when when the calculation all fell out, they must have all. Patted, yeah. each, patted each other on the back for that one. <laughs> yeah. Is there any other constraints like that, or is it, or is it, or does it seem that it is just the, it's just the, the, the rate that you're rotating? Another thing that um, that that we, again, people who people who follow space science, know a lot more about now is radiation, and that's a that's a really tough problem to solve too. That, that was sort of a little bit hand waved um, in in some of the proposals that I studied from the 70s um, because that's going to cause a lot of that's going to cause its own kind of physiological problems of course too and then um, also the question of moving more or less you know at regular rates back and forth between zero gravity where you do industrial work where you'd have that industrial base because that's one of the benefits of zero gravity is that it's much easier to assemble large things and um, you can do it uh, with free energy from the sun, etc. But you'd be going back and forth, right? You'd be sort of mm. clocking in at zero G and then clocking out and then going home at one G and then you do it again the next day or the next you know week, whatever, however the shift worked out. And that's a really understudied problem physiologically too. Because, you know, we tend to keep people um, out in space. If we're going to take the trouble to send them, we want them to be there for a little while. We're not going to just sort of take them up and take them down again. Um, but if you're in one of these habitats, that's the benefit is that you can easily go back and forth. But there might be, there probably will be, these the physiologists said, um, problems that could arise from that back and forth between 0G and 1G too. Yeah, but presumably there's, as, as a, if you have a building on the ground, as you go up the stories, your, your, gravity, yeah. your gravity significantly drops more than it does on a, on a, on a massive object. Does that, have a, does, does that actually have some engineering problems associated with it? Probably it's a benefit because you can you can build taller and taller and taller already, you know, and, and many buildings use this expressively uh, already. Of course, every, with every new story, it's going to be carrying less weight so you can make the structure thinner. Even on earth, that's, that's the case. And people use that architecturally, spatially. Um, I think it's, I think another interesting question that that gives rise to is, is the notion of a kind of social hierarchy built into the architecture too, mm. because even, 
even on Earth in our cities, to go higher is to gain access to more, um, you know, what urban planners constantly talk about in terms of light and air, which are rare resources in cities. So there tends to, that, that um, these, these layers tend to map to uh, class, even, that the kind of image of the, of the CEO or the tycoon in the penthouse is mm. a really, you know, familiar one. So if, if, that privileged position also maps to a literal sort of lighter weight. Um, what does that do in terms of, of how cities and buildings inside these habitats would be, what does it do to how they'd be constructed um, socially and architecturally and how that, how that architecture would um, relate to or, or map to culture and class? Yeah, well, I'm going to wonder if you could... It would get to the point where you'd make some of the lower floors even more than one G. So you're kind of uh, yeah. b- breeding in a working class that are stronger, I suppose. <laughs> you know, in, in science fiction, that that the, the lower levels are always where you know where the workers are and where there's the talk of revolution, you know, whispered among the pipes, and then the upper levels are where the um are where the kind of blasé, uh, clueless, um, you know, usually in in the imagery. Uh, white, blonde, Nordic peoples are going about their business and exploiting the people below. So this is an old scenario in, in science fiction, and it's one of the ways in which science fiction functions to kind of warn us about unintended cultural and political consequences of, of the way we think about the future. And this is, this is going to show up in these scenarios that uh, people were talking about here, too. Yeah, that it's yeah, it's it's super interesting, the, the 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 psychological and the social aspects of it. What what was the most exciting and most revelatory thing that you discovered while writing the book and and delving into all these materials? I, I'm I'm fascinated by the the opportunities to really work against all those limitations. If you if you can build a space from scratch. And this is something that um, that I write about in the book a little bit. Even architectural space on Earth is always going to be implicitly sort of for certain people and not for other people. You know, and for instance, I live in a 200-year-old house. It doesn't have an elevator. A person who's, who's using a wheelchair would have, would not be able to buy this house without spending a lot of money to retrofit it or change it. The way we construct space um, we're, we're always implicitly constructing a per- type of person who the space is for. Mm. So I think there are, and, and that's here when that's tied to um, not just, say, the light levels, the uh, temperature and humidity of the air, when you can also design the gravity, when you can also design um, the ground. Um, there are constraints there, but there are also opportunities to redefine who those, who those things are for. I think there is the chance, and this is, Utopia and dystopia always haunts these these future scenarios, and there is a chance to sort of to to think about applied utopian thinking to really make space that was for as many people as possible. Mm. And then also, you know, related to that, there there are there are other things in if we're putting together whole societies in space where certain resources are really abundant and certain resources are really constrained. Um, I think there's the opportunity, and this is to, to, to really not just create the architectural space in a way that, that is as inclusive as possible, but to, um, to build new models of sort of access to 
basic human needs um, that could also be as inclusive as possible. For instance, right now, the Outer Space Treaty that was um, ratified in the 1960s by um, a bunch of the countries that had spaceflight capacity at the time, um, there's a provision there for um, uh, right of rescue and return, which is part of the responsibilities of any astronaut, any, you know, any space-going human, that if you encounter another space-going human who is in trouble or in need of assistance, um, you have the responsibility to rescue them and offer aid, right? sort of based on laws of the sea and things like that. Mm. But that's a really utopian, uh, it's a really utopian sort of political concept, too, about rights to resources. If, if, you know, this is sort of similar to the idea that if we could design an ecosystem in space, why can't we intervene in the design of ecosystems on Earth that are breaking down? If we can create a kind of utopian political situation where there is this, uh, this basic principle of mutual aid and mutual access to um, the necessities for life, food, air, water, um, why can't we map that back down to Earth as well? So there is the, I love that, I love that, thinking about the future and thinking about these distant spaces and thinking about the, the potential capacity to create whole worlds, architecturally, politically, economically. Um, it also offers us a lot of, a lot of opportunities to say, we can, we can do that. We can do that anywhere. We can do that on earth. We could, we could offer guaranteed access to basic human needs and human rights here just like we could maybe intervene and fix the ecosystem here if we consciously try to develop these capacities. The hard nut to crack, yeah. isn't it? That that trying to come up with problems in science and solving them with technology, engineering, science, etc., rather than just letting the scientists get on and discover things and then roll that back into 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 changing society. It's it's yeah. good. It's good that there's both those both those mechanisms. And and you're absolutely right that that thinking forward can sometimes pay off i mean you only have to look at the apollo i suppose mission has fed back into society in a in a very positive and not really foreseen way when they were doing mm-hmm. some of the things that they were doing I, I, I guess the famous architectural one is the is the 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 vibration shock uh, that's built into a lot of buildings to resist earthquakes from the um, mm. from the Apollo launch towers and things. So, mm. yeah, mm-hmm. so you, but but it wasn't explicitly designed to um, stop earthquake uh, to stop earthquake damage, but it's just sort of found its way there. It's a kind of adv- yeah. advocacy for just letting engineers get on with what they do best and 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 just <laughs> solve problems of their own and hope that it it, it uh, pays back. I suppose. Yeah, and and often that stuff. If if that that model of like basic research is the is the base, um, then often any products of that basic research just end up recuperated to reinforce existing political or economic norms. Where can people read about what you're up to, or get your book, or learn more about some of the stuff that you've been doing? Sure. Um, yeah, I don't I don't have a, a sort of a writing website or anything i probably should put that together but the the book is available from columbia university press um so from their site uh is is one place to get it or if you want to um i would say if you want to help fund jeff bezos's uh uh, ambitions (laughs) by giving him a little money too um of course you can get it on amazon um but uh yeah i i 
you can find me on Twitter most of the time. I'm at, I'm at seven, six, five on Twitter. And, uh, I think there's the, that sort of the, w- the way Twitter exists almost as a utopian place where you can just sort of start conversations with physicists and ask them questions, start conversations with people in space science or, or my favorite new field is science and technology studies. Um, and uh, I made made friends with a lot of anthropologists on Twitter. I, I love the kind of the utopia of, of Twitter and the way it makes communities out of, out of different types of people, again, that, that you wouldn't ordinarily expect to encounter in spaces that are overly uh, constrained. Yep. So yeah, at 765 on Twitter. Fantastic. Yeah, it's it's both utopian and dystopian, isn't it, Twitter? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, thank you very much for 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 coming on and and talking to us. Is is there, is, there, is there anything about space settlements that that you that you'd like to say before before I I say cheerio? Oh, just that somebody's going to do it sooner or later. Yeah. What what right? what's what sort of time frame? What sort of time frame do you put it put on it? Oh, that's dangerous. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I, <laughs> I demand an answer. <laughs> let's say, um, yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if let's say let's say this. I wouldn't be surprised that the International Space Station has been continuously occupied um, since the early two thousands or late nineteen nineties. Mm. I wouldn't be surprised if we're already in the era of humans permanently living in space. Yeah. Let's say that. That there, there will be humans in space from the initial occupation of the ISS onto an indefinite future. That was, I, I almost feel like you've copped out there. What, what I really <laughs> want <laughs> is the one where a, a uh, something like the ISS that is a, a permanent, uh, where you could actually say, yeah, that is a self-sustaining permanent habitation. I'll, I'll, okay, I'll make a I'll make a hard prediction then. So in the in the back of of NASA's official report from the 1975 summer study, they have cost estimates, and they costed out the um, the Stanford Taurus at I don't remember the 1975 figure, but I had converted it to um, 2018 dollars. It was 850 billion in 2018 dollars, which is honestly not that much. No, the uh, global financial bailout was like three times that. Um, so. I'd say that a construction of, say, rotating a rotating permanent human habitat in space will probably be underway within the next, by 2040, 20 years. Oh, wow. Well, okay, that's a good one. I'd, I'd, that 880 billion, of course, if we treat it in the same way the James Webb telescope uh, exactly. price rose, <laughs> that, yeah. it's, it's, it starts off as a good figure. It gets frighteningly yeah. larger. I would think it only goes up from there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> notoriously bad at getting that right. Thanks very much for having the conversation. It's been absolutely brilliant. Thanks a lot. That was really enjoyable, man. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive. So there you go, Jamie. Uh, that was ice. A little bit of a history lesson on O'Neill and 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 some social stuff as well. I love. I, I, he was a really really cool guy. I'd love to get him on again. Because really uh, cool uh, guy, yeah. Let's hope he's a regular. Super cool stuff. Yeah, super cool. Thanks very much to uh, Rob on the Discord for to hooking that up. In fact, really coming up with a whole idea of all all of this stuff. Yeah, cheers, Rob and Matt. If you want to join uh, the Elite Discord crew, mm. what have you got to do? Just gotta just gotta get yourself over to interplanetary.org.uk. Uh, have a little wander around there, click on the Patreon button and maybe join up. And if you become a patron, you automatically come over to the Discord uh, channel and you can join in the conversation and shape 
future shows just like our Discord crew always do. They're legends. Which shape will you choose? Plum shape. Oh, don't start that again. That's not the plums again. Um, Jamie, did you know? Yes. If the Earth was the size of a pea, Pluto would be a small grain of sand about two miles away. I didn't know that, but I like it. I like it. Imagine a pea at the Roy- in the Royal Institute sitting on yeah. like a tiny plinth in the, in the Royal Institute, and that, and that was the Earth. And then you walked all the way across London to Temple Tube Station, say, and then saw on the floor a piece of sand, a tiny grain of sand. That's the equivalent scale to Earth and Pluto. It's just insane. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's just and mad. to have the audacity to not call it a planet. I mean, get out of it. <laughs> it makes you realise how empty the solar system is, though, doesn't it? Really is. That's why mining asteroids is really, really difficult. <laughs> it's the future. It is the future. But I'm going to be it's, one of the pioneers. You heard it here first. Yeah, it's goddamn difficult. Anyway, Jamie, you've got to go, haven't you? I've got, I've to, got go. to go. But I wish everybody a good weekend. And, you know, I'm going to bury this podcast for 50 years uh, in case we get humiliated. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to do as well. Or I yeah. might. Or if you were listening to it, we decided against that. We decided against it. Well, have a good weekend, everyone. Goodbye. Bye-bye, Spodcats. Au revoir. See you.